Well, good evening. If you would turn your Bible uh, to Genesis chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 10 to the following, and then we're not going to be in Genesis. We're not going to actually be in Genesis until the new year um, for all, because of all the different activities that are coming on Sunday night. So this is a great place uh, to conclude this year's study in Genesis. We'll pick up in the new year in Genesis chapter 12. That just happened beautifully and providentially. I didn't plan that, but it really is a perfect place. Uh, thank you, Adam and Praise Team and Regen um, for leading us again in worship. And Regen, again, had their football chili bowl this afternoon. And at Lakeview, everyone doesn't get a trophy. There are winners and there are those who don't win, right? And we had some in my house that won and others who didn't, as some of you had. And yet they were here uh, because it's far more important uh, what they're doing in choir than any, than any game. Um, it was brought to my attention before we come to prayer that not everyone knows that Greg Key's father died on Thursday evening. And uh, we apologize if we did not communicate that well. That, I'll take responsibility for that. But uh, his funeral is tomorrow at 2 o'clock in Birmingham. And so please be in prayer. Uh, they are grieving, but they're also rejoicing. Because Greg's dad was in Christ. He was a faithful man. Greg will be speaking at the funeral. You could pray for him. And I told him, I said, Greg, I, I preached my mother's funeral. I cried all the way through it. Uh, and there's nothing uh, to be uh, ashamed of there. It honors uh, your dad, if you cry all the way through uh, your, your words, but please be in prayer for his family uh, as that funeral will be tomorrow at two o'clock. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word as he's already blessed the singing of his word tonight. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you that we have a savior to sing about. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us the desire to sing about our savior. Indeed, we, we worship the, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this evening. And Lord, now as we come to this, uh, this obscure text in many ways, I pray that you would show us how profitable it is for your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2006, Dorothy Hours came out with a very interesting book in which she writes about a racehorse that was named Fair Play. Uh, he, he was a, a thoroughbred uh, in the early 1900s and one of the, the fastest and um, best racehorses in the United States at the time. Well, Fair Play's owner took him to Europe, took him to England uh, to match him up against the best racehorses in the world. Fair Play didn't do well. Uh, on British soil. Uh, the book says that he grew foul-tempered, and in six races, he never fished, finished in the top three. The fact is, fair play never achieved lasting fame. It's very likely you've never heard of fair play. After uh, his unsuccessful trip to England, fair play would never race again. But fair play was not finished as a horse. So he returned home to Kentucky 
And here's what Dorothy Hours writes in her book. There, he would father a cult more brilliant than himself. That's my prayer for every father here. And that cult he sired was man of war. The greatest racehorse in history. By all accounts, the number one racehorse of the 20th century was man of war. You go to Lexington today. We, we've been in Louisville for the last 19 years. Uh, we would often be in Lexington. Virtually everything you saw had man of war's name on it. Um, in 21 career races, man of war won 20 of them. And the only race he didn't win, he finished second. There has never been another horse like man of war. So back to fair play. Fair play's greatest accomplishment in life and his greatest accomplishment to the world wasn't as a racehorse. It was as a father. Now we come to a man like that in our passage tonight, Genesis chapter 11. You may have never heard his name before. You've probably read it, but maybe you didn't take note of it. His name was Terah. Of course, Terah was not picked at random. Terah is from the line of Shem, the son of Noah, the, the line of promise. In other words, Terah is a descendant of the very line of promise. Indeed, unlike the, the tower builders that we read about last week who overreached their human bounds to make a name for themselves, God is going to make a name for himself through the line of Shem. And Terah plays a very significant role in that, though he's not as well known as his son. Okay? So God's plan, let's review, from the beginning was to preserve for himself a godly line through whom the promise seed of Genesis 3.15 would come. Now that sounds like a broken record, but you really can't read Genesis without echoing that theme throughout the book. You can't read the Old Testament without echoing that theme through, throughout the Old Testament. And when you come to the New Testament, the writers are intentional about showing that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. And what we're going to see tonight is that the Lord, God, used the lesser-known Terah in preparation. But before we come to that, we're going to see a, a second record of the genealogy of Shem. You think that's important? Uh, for there to be that genealogy for the second time drives home something very important for us. Uh, the second genealogy since the flood. Um, the first one we saw stands as a part of a register of all the sons of Noah and his descendants, but here it stands alone. Um, this particular genealogy focuses not only on Shem, but on a particular son's line that comes from Shem. Um, for instance, we saw in chapter 10, uh, in verse 25, to Eber, where we get that word Hebrew, 
were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. For the rest of Genesis 10, you read about Joktan's line that will culminate in the Tower of Babel. You leave Peleg's name hanging there. Well, we're going to read about Peleg's line here in Genesis chapter 11 that terminates in Abram. So this is a very important uh, section of the Old Testament. So what Moses is doing, he's tracking the line of Abram, whose name would be changed to Abraham, uh, through the line of Shem, who is the lineage of the seed of the promise. And we know that with authority, because if you go to Luke chapter 3, we won't take the time to do that, but in Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3, he traces Jesus all the way back to Adam, the son of God, through the line of Shem. So Luke's doing the same thing. And one of the things I want you to notice as we come to this, this section, um, as we make our way through these names, and we're going to go through these names very fast, is that the lifespans are going to de decrease dramatically as we read through these names. That's intentional. Um, it, it shows the effect of God's decision to limit the human lifespan. We saw that all the way back in chapter 6, verse 3, when it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. So the lifespan is going to decrease as we go through this genealogy. And at the same time, we're going to be reminded of God's blessing on sinful man. He has not completely turned his back on sinful man because for every uh, member of this genealogy, we're going to see sons and daughters are born. Blessings that will culminate in one man, the son, the son of Terah, the seed of the promise. Look at me in verse 10. <clears throat> These are the generations of Shem. Remember, Shem's name means name. Uh, when Shem was 100 years old, he fathered a park shod two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered a park shod 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When a park shod had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Aparkshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. Again, that name for Hebrew. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And of course, we saw again, Peleg was one of the sons of Eber. The other was Joktan. And we read about Joktan's line in chapter 10, but we didn't read about uh, Pelegs. Now we're starting to see that. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Reu. Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had thir lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. Reu lived after he fathered Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Naor. And Serug lived after he fathered Naor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. So when you read about the multiplication of the race, a human race, it's a cause for celebration. Um, children are a gift from God. Reproductive freedom is not. 
as we say today. Um, and Serug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. That's the name. It's an important name, maybe a name you've not been familiar with. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered, note, Abram, whose name will later be changed to Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations, Naor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Naor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, redemptive history, sacred history, has periods of time called silent years in which there's no special revelation from God and there's no special acts from God or, or by God. The most famous of those is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's, there's 400 years of silence between Malachi and, and the prophecy that is given to Zechariah in the Gospel of Luke. Well, here's another example. We don't know how long the gap is between the judgment at the Tower of Babel and, and God calling uh, Abram. But there's certainly a period of time, and there's no revelation given to us during that time. There's no special acts of God. These verses, though, in verses 10 to 28, and even on to verse 30, give us no historical information. They merely uh, present the line from which Abram um, came, beginning with Noah's son, Shem. But here's my point that I want to make. This reminds us that generations and family lines all play a central role in God's providential plan for any particular generation. So I, I, I know my parents, and I knew my grandparents, and I knew one of my great-grandparents, my great-granddad. But each one of them played a significant role in me being who I am. But I would even submit to you, my great-great-grandparents that I never knew played a central role because they impacted my great-grandparents who impacted my parents. And on, the, on and on you may go. Each one of us plays a central role in the development of our family line. In other words, what we do will affect in some way our family line for the remainder of our family line's history. And one of the things we see immediately in this opening narrative of Abram is God's work of preparing him. And I think this is very encouraging for us. But clearly, he's been preparing Terah first. So the seven men from Aparkshah to Nahor all became fathers in their late 30s, or late 20s, and their early 30s. Not so with Terah. It says that Terah was 70 years old uh, when Abram 
was born. Now, why is that relevant? Well, some scholars speculate that that this foreshadows the problem of barrenness that's going to be facing uh, Sarai and, and Abram and in fact, all of the patriarchs, that, that what, what a, the world needs, only God can provide. But also, um, the fact that he's 70 before the important son, Abram, is born, I think speaks to the fact that it's taken 70 years to prepare him to be the kind of father that the, the father of the nations, if you will, Abraham, will need. And so God has been preparing the future father of the people of God by preparing his father. And that's important for all of us as parents and as, and, and as grandparents. And, and the same thing holds true in, in God's service. God prepares his saints for the task for which he appoints them. And he has a a task for each one of us. So for example, Moses spent 40 years on the backside of the the wilderness herding sheep before God called him. I've heard it said that the first 40 years of Moses' life, he spent in Egypt in Pharaoh's court learning something. The second 40 years he spent on the backside of the desert learning that he's nothing. And then the last 40 years where he led God's people out of Egypt, he learned that God was everything. Uh, But all of those years were in preparation. Nothing was wasted. Even when it would have felt to Moses, I'm just wasting my life away. And then you think about David. Uh, David is, is basically a shepherd. He is a shepherd. And he's not even esteemed by his father. And yet all of that was preparation for what God was going to do when he anointed David. And even after David got anointed, he spent some 10 to 13 years in the caves running from Saul. Uh, he was being prepared to be the king, but it took all of those years of, of preparation And so this principle of preparation for service is very evident in in Abram's life and indeed his father's life. And we often miss this, I think, because usually if you you read books on on Abraham, it begins with Genesis chapter 12. And Abram didn't begin in chapter 12. Um, That's not where it begins. His, His story is introduced in verse 27 of chapter 11 which signals that God's dealing with Abram didn't start with Abram as a 75-year-old man about to set out on a journey. God didn't just descend looking for a qualified retiree um, to act as the father of the people of God. He's been preparing Abram even before Abram was born by preparing Abram's father. In other words, God so loved the world that he gave us the son of Terah, all right? But that did not happen in a vacuum. God had to prepare the son by preparing the father. 
I make much of that because as fathers, it is vital that we prepare ourselves to be God's man for our sons and daughters. Of course, mothers have a critical role in that, but that's another sermon for another day. Well, look with me in verse 29. And Abram and Naor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, because her name's going to be changed later to Sarah. And the name of Naor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. So Abram's two brothers are Naor and Haran, and they marry. Nahor marries the daughter of his deceased brother, Haran, which is likely some form of legal protection, as we will see with the institution of the Leverite laws later on when the law is written, Deuteronomy 25. There were, there were things permitted when the, when the world was multiplying that was not permitted later when the law of God was instituted. But the mention of this marriage is going to anticipate a particular person. Who is that? Rebecca. Uh, Isaac's future bride, Abram's son, Isaac, um, who will be the granddaughter of Naor and Milcah. So we're seeing it right here, uh, and we'll, we'll learn that in Genesis chapter 24. Abram's bride is Sarai. Now, it's interesting that her father's name is not revealed here. Though Moses knows her name, knows her uh, father's name. We don't know why he doesn't list the name here, but we know who her father is. Her father is Terah. She's going to have a different mother than Abram, but they're going to have the same father. Uh, we learn later in Genesis chapter 20 that Sarah is Abram's half-sister. Uh, but what is mentioned is Sarah's barrenness. That is clear. Moses wants us to take note of that because this will be the backdrop. Remember, chapter 12 wasn't written when Moses wrote it. The chapter divisions came later. Um, the, the, the verse... The verses came later as well, right? So we're reminded here that Sarah is barren, and that's the backdrop of the promise in chapter 12, verse 2, when God tells Abram that you and Sarai are going to have multitudes of children, as, as, as many as the, the stars of the sky. And so what is being set up here is that this is the hope of the world. It will come through Abram and Sarai. But what humanity, fallen humanity needs, the, the humanity we read about in the Tower of Babel, only God can provide. That's only, our only hope is in what God can provide. I also think the barrenness points to a, a virgin conception that will come later. Paradoxically, uh, her inability in this area was a crucial part 
of God's plan of preparation for her role in this plan. That is, in order for her to be the kind of mother that would bear the child of promise, it's clearly the case that it was necessary that she be unable to bear children without divine interruption. And this would impact the kind of mother she would be. God wastes nothing. Everything that we experience, good and bad, is all a part of the good things that God works together for his people. Well, notice in verse 31 and 32 as we uh, conclude this chapter, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years. Terah died in Haran. So Abraham or Abram is the one who gets the credit for leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. You've probably heard that, that he was willing to leave moon worship leave his kindred behind and leave Ur to go into the land that God promised. Well, that's certainly true. But notice who did it first. It was actually his father Terah who first set out for Canaan, taking Abram with him. Now, there's no reason given. Moses doesn't give us a reason here, but it's clear that the seeds are being planted in Abram's mind that God will bring, will water, uh, will water and, and bring uh, an increase to. Such is the impact of a father. But they never made it to Canaan. For some reason, uh, we're not told. Again, um, where God closes his holy mouth, we will desist from inquiry. But they stopped there in Haran. And yet the idea of, of Abram going into the land of Canaan, uh, that has been planted in Abram's mind by his father, Terah. Through this experience of, of moving, um, think about this, and I, 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 we, we've talked about this as a family, how we just, just cut the roots in Louisville, it was painful to cut those roots, and to relocate, that's going to have an effect on the rest of our, our kids' lives and future. And here, through this experiencing of moving from uh, family and friends and kindred, moving from Ur, all of that was preparation for Abram. So that when the call to move to Canaan came from God himself... He was ready. God had fitted him to hear his call and answer it. Again, yes, God commands Abram, but the seeds have been planted by his father. And in an unexpected way, God was preparing Abram for God's purposes. And it started with his father, get this, Terah, who was clearly converted out of paganism. 
Now, why would I say it's clear that Terah was converted out of paganism? Well, consider later on in Genesis chapter 31, verse 53, Laban is, a, is negotiating with, with Jacob. And here's what he says in chapter 31, 53. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Do you get that? The God of their father, judge between us. And so we see here that Terah worshipped the true and living God. Um, and so it appears that one of the ways Abram was being prepared was through a father who had been converted out of moon worship, out of idolatry and paganism. Again, Abram often receives all the, the credit for uh, being you know, delivered out of that moon worship, but it really began with his father, Terah. That raises the question, though, a practical question, because we worship the same God, even though we're, we're not role players in, the, in this plan of redemption that, that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. What good works is God preparing you for? The reality is he is. If you're a believer, and, and your answer may be, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Well, that's okay. That's okay. God's purposes are not always apparent at the time. But if you are grafted in the line of promise, Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, you don't have to wonder if God is preparing you. He is using everything in your life to do it. Uh, the, even the, the troublesome circumstances you might be in, be in right now. The troublesome relationships you may be in right now. The struggles, the pains, all of that is playing a role in God's preparation. He used barrenness in Sarah's life. And so he's doing that. Think about this. Moses at one time probably felt that he was stuck in the wilderness, the desert, and put on the permanent sidelines. He probably felt that way. David probably would not have known when he was working as the shepherd, uh, when all of his brothers seemed to be esteemed over him, uh, that God was doing that to prepare him. Of course, we know that he was because when he went before Goliath, he said, the same God that delivered me from the paw, the lion, and the bear um, will deliver me from, from you. God was preparing uh, David. Joseph probably felt uh, forgotten when he was sold as a slave. I mean, the most heinous event in perhaps history was what his brothers did to him. Jerry Springer wouldn't touch that story. Uh, and he probably felt like as he is serving in Potiphar's house and later when he's thrown into jail because of obedience to God, fleeing Potiphar's wife, he probably felt that God has forgotten me, God has turned his back on me for whatever reason. But we know that God was preparing Joseph. And Abram and, and, and Sarah's barrenness wouldn't have been understood at that time. They probably felt that uh, this was their 
uh, destiny, and there was nothing beyond that. This week, I, I had lunch with a, with a, uh, a young fellow who, who, who graduated from West Point. Uh, his, uh, his dad is one of my best friends. We go all the way back to, to high school. We played football together. And I had lunch with this young fellow, and uh, he's being discharged from the military, a medical discharge. He's an honorable man, honorable uh, uh, um, soldier, but uh, he, has, he, has, he has hurt his back in a way that cannot be fixed. Uh, surgery won't even be able to fix uh, his back. And so he, after graduating from West Point, had planned to go to ranger school. And now all his friends are planning to go to ranger school, and he's about to be medically discharged. And he told me, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. And I had these plans. Well, this young man is a believer. And I told him, I said, I want you to know your injury to your back is not an obstacle for God. It's his strategy. It's his strategy. We see that in the scripture. God does not waste anything. God is preparing this young man. But even lengthy preparations do not guarantee immediate fruit or success. Think about this. Although God had prepared Abram and and Sarai to, to, to hear his call, to obey his call, and then called them to be Um, the the custodian of the seed that would bless the nations for a long time, a long, long time, at least some 25 years after he makes the promise to them, the only thing that distinguished them from their neighbors was the promise of God. That's the only thing they had. The only thing they had to hold on to was the promise of God. There was no halo of glory surrounding their camels. It was just the promise, the promise, the promise of God. And and that's why I'm so deeply encouraged, especially by these last verses in Genesis 11. Um, Terah took Abram his son, Lot the son of Aaron, his grandson, and uh, they went forth together from Ur. There's nothing remarkable about it. And yet everything's remarkable about it. And they go into the land, to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Nothing remarkable, but everything remarkable. It it appears at face value, after we read about the Tower of Babel, the last word we've heard from God, he brought judgment. It appears he has abandoned humanity. We've not read anything positive in this passage except multiplying of of sons and daughters. But then we read about barrenness. But God's at work in the seeming mundane things of life. Babies are being born. A family is on the move into the land of Canaan. And you know the rest of the story. It changes everything. It changes history. Because in that very land, centuries later, in the fullness of time, amen? Galatians chapter 4, God would send forth a son, a far-off son of Terah, a far-off son of Abram, indeed, the son of God himself, born of a woman. What does that mean? Born of a virgin, 
a virgin woman that a barren woman could only typify. Born under the law. Why? Because he's coming to redeem those of us who are under the curse of the law. Born under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know what that means? That means we are grafted into the line of promise. The very line we read about right here. That would not have happened without the circumstances we see in our passage. And now, as sons, and you say, well, I'm a woman. Why are you calling me a son? Well, I'm a man, but I'm the bride of Christ. So get over it. Uh, (laughs) We're called sons because it was the sons who had the inheritance. And so in that sense, as metaphorical sense, We're all firstborn sons because we're in Christ, the firstborn son, the heir of all things, right? So as sons and daughters of God, uh, he's not done with the preparation just because the fulfillment of the promise has come. He's now preparing you. I don't know how, but he is. And in whatever difficulty you're facing right now, that's not an obstacle to God. That's his strategy. He's preparing you. To be an ambassador and an instrument in his hands so that the world might know that the far off grandson of Terah has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Adam and our musicians come forth, uh, we recognize most of you already know that son, the son of promise, but maybe some of you don't. Maybe you have visitors here or uh, young people here. Someone who's been looking into the faith and been visiting. And you realize, I'm not in that line. I haven't been grafted in. I'm still an outsider to that line. But you don't have to be. If you will come to terms with your sin and that God judges and will judge your sin, but God has made provision for your sin in the son of promise, uh, the one in whom uh, comes from Abram. If you will trust in Jesus tonight, if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. You'll be grafted into that line. Why don't you respond to that message tonight as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.